We are starting a seven-week series I'm titling The Advent, The Coming. We're going to be diving into the Christmas story, but we're going to be doing it a little bit differently than maybe you've done it in the past, and we're going to do it a little bit Calvary Chapel style. Let me explain what that means. We're going to go kind of verse by verse through the text of everything related to the Christmas story, and we're going to just work our way through it over seven weeks. We're going to study it. We're going to dig into it. We're going to let the Lord work it into us. We're going to spend seven weeks in the Advent, the birth of Christ, from the beginning all the way through the end and some of the things that came afterwards. If you're a note taker, I'll go ahead and let you know the seven weeks. Here's the structure of what we're going to do. This morning, we're going to look at what I'm titling the rumblings. Next week, we'll look at a, a blessed woman. And then we'll look at a chosen man. Week four, we'll look at the actual advent itself. Then we'll discuss the first visitors, the shepherds. Week six, we'll look at the presentation where they take Jesus, just as Aaron and Ashton did this morning, to the temple. And we had these wonderful declarations, an Old Testament uh, presentation. And then we have confirmation, which we'll look at on Christmas Eve, which we'll look at the wise men. So again, the rumblings, a blessed woman, Mary. We'll look at Joseph, a chosen man, the advent, first visitors, the presentation of Jesus, and then the confirmation as to who he is. So that's kind of the structure of what we're gonna do all the way up to uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, We will not have a Christmas Eve service in the evening. We'll just do our normal Sunday morning since Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday this year. Uh, But that's the structure. So we're gonna start with what I'm titling as the rumblings, and this is a part of the Christmas story that you, that you likely haven't studied because it's not so much related to Mary and Joseph, baby, stable, shepherds, etc. but it's like the early rumblings of what's happening. It's, it's God articulating, God stepping into uh, the void, God shining from the darkness. Think of it as the early, you know, you pull up your weather app and you get, you get, daybreak, but you get the first light, like just that moment where there's just a little bit of hue that hits the darkness, and like we know daytime is coming, and that happens within the scriptures, and we see that within a a relational context associated with Mary, but we find it within the life of a man named Zacharias. Luke chapter 1, and again, our intention here is not to study Uh, The book of Luke, you can do that on your own. We're diving right into the middle of his narration, of his history. Verse 5. We read, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was the daughters of Aaron, was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. So we're introduced to this couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Verse 6, we're we're told, and again, this is by confirmation of the Holy Spirit. It's inspired that they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. In in order to understand 
the true miracle of the advent and to understand the early rumblings of what was to come. You gotta place the entire story within a context, a historical context within the Jewish people, but also within the world at large. We're given by Luke a, a timeline, a time frame that what's about to occur happened in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, so that places us within the Roman Empire. Now, within its flow of Jewish history, and I, I always like to try to place things within a more macro context to understand. Zacharias is priest. When, when we get to this time, time frame, when we get to the days of Herod, you need to keep in mind that God has been silent for 400 years, give or take. The, the last of the Old Testament prophets Malachi has come and gone years before, which is an amazing thing, honestly. We just got done studying the book of Judges. And as gnarly as that 400 years of Jewish history happened to be, was God silent? Was God absent? No, not at all. God was very much at work in the midst of like really um, amazing chaos. And yet within the flow of, of God dealing with the Jewish people, whereas God was still active in the days of the judges, you get after Malachi up into this moment and it's silence. It's really an amazing thing to consider. Now, some big things have happened within the, the Jewish population. The northern 10 kingdoms have been destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. That goes back to 600 BC and they never returned. Following that, the southern kingdom of Judah ends up being uh, dominated and destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies. The people are taken captive to a foreign land. They're in exile. Does it take long? Uh, roughly 70 years that Babylon falls, gives way to Persia, and Xerxes issues a declaration allowing the Jewish people to come return to their homeland. Both of this was judgment of God because they wouldn't obey God. God kept warning them. He kept sending prophets, judges, prophets, representatives, and they turned an ear. They followed after wickedness. They pursued God, godlessness idolatry. And so he judged them. And following the judgment, he allows them to come back. And you can read the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah and, and the returning back, the rebuilding of the temple, Zerubbabel under his leadership. A remnant does come back into the land. They rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the temple. They reinstitute things. Now, there's prophets that are still working, but a really fascinating thing happens in the life of the children of Israel post-exile. So during the return, they get real religious. <laughs> it's, it's actually an astounding thing to look at, but they get real pious. Of all of the things that the children of Israel end up doing is they get serious. Now, I'm not kidding. According to the spiritual revivals that was taking place and under the leadership of Nehemiah and the exhortations of Nehemiah, you find that by the time you get to, to, to Christ, the religious culture is very serious. Now, had it ever been serious before? No, that ends up kind of like why they get judged. And there's three aspects um, of, of, the, of the religious life that they get real pious about. 
One, they get very pious about interacting with the foreigners around them. Now, why would they do that? Well, God had said from the beginning, don't marry them. And what would they do? They would go marry them. And then they experience a judgment of God. And so they come back and they're like, you know what? We're not going to do again. Not going to do that again. Which was correct. But where did it go? Well, by the time you get to Christ, it's not just that the Jewish people are trying to remain separate from the world. They have twisted their favor and their blessing into bigotry. You see, the Jewish religious people hated the Gentiles. Were they ever called to hate the Gentiles? No. They were called to remain separate, but not to hate them. And yet they have this animosity, this resentment. They look down upon them. You had had rabbinical scholars that were saying that the Gentiles only existed to be fodder in hell for bad Jews. That's pretty extreme. And so by the time of of Christ, by the time of the advent, by the time we get to this story, there is this prejudice within, like deeply rooted within religious culture. Started by a good thing, man, we got judged because of our lackadaisical attitude. Pendulum swung hard. Another, Another component was the Sabbath day. You go back through Jewish history, did they ever take the Sabbath day holy? No. In fact, we're told by by the prophets that they're removed from the land for 70 years, specifically why? Because they were supposed to let the land rest every seventh year. It was the Sabbath year. But they didn't. For 490 years, they refused to obey the Sabbath. Can you imagine that? Like, this is a good deal. God's like, listen, I want you to take one day off. I don't care what you got going. Take a day off. And in fact, listen, I want you to work six years. I want you to take a seventh year, take the whole year off, go to the beach, go hang out. Just don't work. Let the land rest. And you had a society of people like, you know, I just don't think that's a good idea. I'm giving you a whole year off. Yeah, but you know what? I think we would rather work. God's like, huh? And so they get removed from the land. Specifically, why? For 70 years because of, well, 490 divided by, like, this is why it was 70 years. And so they come back to the land and they're like, you know, we really should have listened to this Sabbath thing. And so what do they do? They don't just obey the Sabbath, but out of a fear that they might somehow disobey the Sabbath again, they go to an extreme, don't they? Where they're like, well, we're going to define every little jot and tittle of what work looks like. To the point that they, what is, what is the biggest, you know, two big things they had with Jesus was what? The way he treated Gentiles and the Sabbath. They were doing it to remain pious, to be holy, but they had gone to an extreme. And then the third thing was the temple. You know, they had, they had not minded the temple. They had not given the temple its respect and, its, and, and keeping it within its place within society. They allowed it to get into disrepair and ruin and, and allowed it to be used for, for idols and, 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 and wickedness. And then it gets destroyed. And, and they rebuild it, Zerubbabel, and they all weep. Anyone that could remember what it was weeps over this. But like you get to the time of Christ and they really are into the temple, aren't they? Which is why one of the biggest things that irked them about Jesus is he's like, yeah, this building, whatever. Three day, 
it's going to get knocked down, right? I mean, and that, that makes them irate. Now, the reason I bring this up is that it's, it's fascinating. The people are wicked and they're rebellious and God still works within their, within their lives, doesn't he? But then it's when they get religious and pious that what does God do? <laughs> I'm out. Like he's quiet. Oh, you guys, you have it under control now. You've completely missed the point. Like by the time you get to the advent, you have a national identity. The Jewish people, they are very religious. They are religiously conscious. They are devout. They are obedient. I mean, they, they are very serious about what they're doing, but they are in absolute darkness. Because they've completely lost sight of the reason for obedience. They had replaced religion with what God desired, relationship. And so you get into this context, and you have this man, Zacharias. You have his wife, Elizabeth. They are both Levites. Zacharias is a priest. For 400 years, God has not said a word. There's been no prophets. There's been no interventions. There's been no divine word. There's been no prophecy. For 400 years. And in the process, they have just been going on their religious exercises. Now, Zacharias is a priest. And you got to realize that by this point, there's some 20,000 or so priests and the priests had a lot, of, a lot of jobs related to the temple, related to the worship of God. Uh, but because there were so many of them, it was only a select few that would ever really get to um, have any exposure or access to the temple itself. Most of the priests were, were, were busy regarding like preparations or storehouses for lambs and sacrifices or the temple. Tra- like there was a lot of jobs related to the priesthood, but not every priest was given the opportunity to do something fun, like to actually be given access. So you have Zacharias, you have Elizabeth, beautiful family. We're told that they're old and she's childless, which has a stigma to it. Again, within this religious culture, again, not validated by anything God would say in his word, but just as it relates to the culture, Barrenness, there was a stigma to it. It was viewed fruitlessness. It was, it was viewed as being a curse of God, that God had removed his favor. But we're told they're righteous people, so we know that's not the case. So for years, these two have been praying for a child. They've been longing for a child. All of their friends have had children. They're way advanced in age now. They haven't had a child, but they're good people. They're holy people, but they're advanced in years. So we're told, verse 8, that while Zacharias was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Again, there's 20,000 priests. Every day they would light incense uh, within the temple structure twice, once in the morning and once in the evening. And a different priest, 
uh, would be chosen for that particular task. In fact, you can get really deep in the weeds about all of the different protocols and, and how it all took place. There was multiple priests. One would go in and prepare the fire. One would get the bowl ready. One would actually take the bowl with the coals and the incense and would actually go and present it there before the Holy of Holies. So you had, you had the altar of incense. You had the table of showbread. You had the menorah and a very small contained area known as the temple. There was this big curtain, a veil that separated you from the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant should have been, but it's not there because it disappeared years before that. Only one time a year would the high priest be allowed to go in to the Holy of Holies and, 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 and sprinkle the blood uh, for atonement. But every day there would be a process by which a priest would be able to go in and alter the incense. And the incense always is representative of the prayers of the saints, which is why in conjunction with this, there would be a crowd outside that would be praying as the priest gets to go in. This man, Josephus says, like some historians speculate, he's maybe in his early 80s. And he's been a priest his whole life, and his lot falls on him. He gets to go in and do this. This is awesome. I mean, this man has been dreaming of the opportunity to do this his entire life. The lot falls on him, and he's like, yippee, this is wonderful. I get to go in. He gets to put on the robes. He gets to, you know, he gets, he's seen people do this every day for years and years and years and always longed, man, I would love to have my opportunity. I mean, to go into the temple itself, I mean, that's an amazing thing. I mean, that's, that is prime real estate that only few people ever get to walk into. And so this old man, the lot falls, so they would cast lots, well, okay, it would be this family, and then of the family, they cast more lots, well, it's this part of that family, gets all the way to Zacharias, and he's going to get to go, and so he dons his garments, and he gets his stuff, he pulls out the manual, makes sure he doesn't mess, his, you know, mess anything up, and he gets to go, and he gets to offer incense. I'm sure Elizabeth is ecstatic, she's excited, this is a wonderful moment, <clears throat> and he goes in, so the whole congregation's praying, Verse 11, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, <clears throat> standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. I would say so. So again, you gotta kind of get yourself into the story. You're Zacharias. I mean, this room is dark. It's dark. You've got the menorah, that's the only light. You've got this incense. And you go and you put it on the table and then you would close your eyes and you would pray a prayer. This was your chance, you would pray a prayer. As the incense is going up, you would pray a prayer to the Lord. And in the middle of this prayer, have you ever been in a situation where like you felt someone was there but you were a little worried to look This happens often, you're driving. You pull up to a light. You dig in a little, you know. But then you feel, you just feel it, don't you? Before you see it, you feel it, you sense it. You're like, oh no. And you turn and you look over and there's someone staring right at you as you're, as you're digging for gold. And there's nothing you can, there's nothing you can do. A fun story. Years ago, my dad took my brother Nick to the, the, the Fulton County Stadium. It was not Fulton County, it was Turner Field. Uh, so they go, they go to the game. 
and they got good seats. And so, and so they're sitting there, uh, my dad and Nick, and, and my dad is just, I mean, he is digging, digging deep. I mean, he's a full knuckle in. And, and, and my brother, who's like eight years old, goes, dad, dad, look. And they looked up and it was a close up of him on the jumbotron. You know, there's nothing you can do at that point. You might as well just keep digging and embrace the moment. You're Zacharias, you're there praying. At some point you could feel like there's someone here. But no one is supposed to be there. You're the only, they let somebody else in. Can you imagine the moment that he looks? Now we're told he's, a, he's afraid. He's a bit freaked out. I would be too. I'd be like, does this happen to everyone? Is this the great joke they don't tell you about? Like, hey, yeah, <laughs> wait till he sees the angel. There's an angel standing there. Think about that movie, Mr. Deeds, where the butler, sniggy, sniggy, <laughs> you know, he jumps, you underestimate the sneakiness. Like this is the sneaky angel, Gabriel. Freaks the old man out. He's troubled. Fear falls upon him. So the angel says the, the obvious thing. Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Chill out, man. Relax. For your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy <clears throat> and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And then this is what's important. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, the first words here, you know, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. There's some debate in regards to like what prayer the Lord had heard? Was it the prayer that he had been praying right then? Now, it seems logical within the flow of the, of the narrative itself that the answered prayer was about having a child. But you got to imagine, when was the last time they had prayed that prayer? You know, you, you pray for certain things to happen in your life, and you come before the Lord, and you pour your heart out before the Lord, but there's only so much you can do with that, right? At some point where, where you've reached the conclusion that God is either not answering, or he's not listening, or he's not hearing, or he doesn't care, like, however you reach your conclusion, there does come a point within our prayers that was like, you know, I'm just kind of done with that one. They had prayed for a child for years and years and years. Lord, give us a child. We want a child. How many years had that prayer ceased? 20 years? I mean, if they're in their 80s, that would have stopped 40 years ago? 45 years ago? I mean, when? And it seems as though the angel's saying, God's heard your prayer. 
you're going to have a son. So maybe it was the prayer years before, which is interesting. And there's an application, an exhortation. God was hearing. It's the present tense, isn't it? God hears your prayers, all of them. In fact, you can go to the book of Revelation and you can see that there are big bowls in heaven filled with the prayers of the saints. God hears your prayers. And just because God is silent doesn't mean he didn't hear them, doesn't mean he doesn't care. It just means he's not ready to answer that prayer yet. For years they had prayed for a child, and for years they hadn't. And then the angel shows up like, yo, Zach, you're going to have a baby. God heard your prayers. He's like, you're a little late. <laughs> like, is the snail mail, is this not getting there in time? Is there just like a delay in the, the angelic delivery system? I prayed this a long time ago. Or could it have been, and I think you can make the case, that it was the, the child... The answer to that prayer is also about the prayer he was probably praying. Because it was customary to pray for deliverance, to pray for salvation, to pray that God would send the deliverer. So you need to understand this component. You go all the way back to Genesis 3. Within the curse itself, God had made it very clear to the serpent, right? a messianic promise that it would be through the seed of the woman, which is an interesting thing because women, if you don't know your biology, don't have seed, except for maybe in our culture, but that's weird. The seed of the woman, it was an early reference to a miraculous birth. And then you get to Isaiah, where it gets even more specific, the virgin shall conceive. You see, within this culture, there was an anticipation of God providing a miraculous birth, God providing a miraculous conception, the virgin conceiving, that God would send a deliverer. And, and, and you can go through all the Old Testament prophecy about this. This is the, the root of, of the prophecy that God had given to Noah and the Noahic covenant. This, is, this goes back to, to uh, Abraham, the whole essence of Abraham, it would be through your seed, I'll provide the deliverer. And then, and then from there, of the two sons, you have Ishmael, the son of the flesh, but it's the son of promise, it's Isaac, it'll be through your seed that I'll provide a deliverer. And then of, 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 of Esau and Jacob, it would be through Jacob. And then of Jacob's sons, it gets whittled down, to, it'll be from Judah, and then from all of Judah's family, it gets whittled down further to David. And there's this messianic expectation. There's this hope the virgin will conceive. And Zechariah, after 400 years of silence, he's going about this mundane, special, cool task. And, and an angel comes out of nowhere, says, I've heard your prayer. You're going to have a son, and your son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. The final words of the Old Testament, Malachi. The final words. We find this prophecy about sending Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. That is the final exhortation, revelation that God gives his people. And then the next utterance, 
we find is the angel appearing to Zacharias saying, your son will come in the power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. Your prayers have been heard and I'm going to work in your life and you will have a son and he will be special and he will be unique and he will be different and he will have a holy calling. You will name him John, which means God is gracious. For had the people done anything to deserve deliverance? To merit it, to warrant it, no. But God would act as he had done in the past in spite of the people, not because of the people, and he would send John to prepare the way. This is an amazing prophecy, a holy moment. You're in the temple. How many people are in the temple and an angel shows up and says, yeah, this prayer about a kid for so long, it's gonna be answered. And this is who your kid's going to be. So Zacharias, verse 18, said to the angel, what? I mean, that's kind of my translation of the, of the Greek. He says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, <coughs> and my wife is well advanced in years. You know, it takes, it takes a certain measure of stubbornness to argue with an angel. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, I mean, you got, this guy's got some, some, some gumption. Angel appears. Don't worry. Wonderful prophecy. And Zacharias' reaction? Nah. <laughs> he, I don't know how it works with the angels, but you see me, you should see my wife. We're not having children. This is, this ship sailed long time ago, bucko. You're arguing with an angel, okay? That's crazy to me. I, I say that's crazy, but we are argue with God. Which also seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? What's crazier, arguing with an angel or arguing with Jesus? So we got to give Zacharias a little, a little credit. He's just arguing with an angel, and we're guilty of arguing with Jesus. So there's some mercy there. I love the angel's response, though. So the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. <laughs> and in case you don't know about me, I stand in the presence of God I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Now, this would have been uh, pretty loaded because Zacharias would have been familiar with Gabriel because Gabriel is a character in the book of Daniel. So as, as, as a priest, as a scholar, as somebody that would have been familiar with the scriptures, you know, hey, there's an angel. He should have asked for the name or look for a name tag or something in advance. Because when the angel says, I am Gabriel, he's dropping a, a bomb, right? He's like, do you not know who you're talking to? You're arguing with Gabriel, you moron. I'm the, I'm the angel that stands in the presence of God. You know this curtain? I'm on the other side of it. You're arguing with me? 
And you're arguing with me because I told two old people that they're going to conceive and have a child. Not like your original. Because, I mean, let's be real. God's already done that trick. The entire Jewish faith is based upon two old people getting pregnant supernaturally. So, Zach, like the very fact that he doubts this or he has like some reservation, like, I don't think that's possible. Gabriel's like, have you not read your own Bible? I'm Gabriel. And then he literally tells him to shut up. Follow. He says, behold, you will be mute and, and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. Now, so there's a crowd outside waiting. He's gone in to do his, his duty. Like, man, this guy is milking it for as long as he can. I mean, they're looking at the sundial watches and they're like, come on, bucko. We're just hanging out here waiting on you. And, and the way it would have worked, Temple Stairs, the whole thing, he would have come out and he would have given a blessing, the ironic blessing. So he would have come out, he had done his prayer, he had done his duty, and he would have done this, given a, a, this, this big exhortation. Now he's doubted Gabriel. Gabriel's like, ship, shutting you up. He goes back out. They're like, oh, he's finally here. And he comes up to give a blessing. At what point did he know he couldn't talk? I don't know. I, don't, I, I mean, it doesn't really tell us. But he's like, he, and they're like, well, this is, we've never seen this one before. This is a weird one. He decides that instead of the ironic blessing, we're playing charades. I, I say that because, because follow. So he comes out, he could not speak. They perceived he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. That literally the word he beckoned to them can be translated charades. That's what happens here. He can't speak. They don't know what's going on. They perceive that he's seen a vision. How? Because he reenacts what happens. You know, you know, like, imagine how he's playing that one out. You know, baby. I mean, they perceive, well, something happened. And then, so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, he went to his own house. After those days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived she hid herself five months, saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me <clears throat> in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. <laughs> I, I, maybe I'm playing this out too far, but um, that conversation when Zacharias gets home, you know, Elizabeth, you'll never believe. You know, he's got to write this out. He's dancing it out. At some point in this process, he's got to convince her, God told us to. 
right? I know you're old and I'm old. We're a little rusty at this, but God told us to. Which I tell Jessica that almost nightly. (laughs) We know the mots. You know, Mary, Mary is a miraculous, a miraculous conception. Like there's a miraculous thing that happens. She did not know a man. This, this required, so God, God revealed something to Zacharias, but, but it still necessitated his obedience, didn't it? And, and it necessitated faith on his part and, and Elizabeth. They had to act on the promises of God to see the fulfillment of those promises. I think there's a nugget there for us, isn't there? That God gives us promises, but he wants us to act on them. And it's in acting on them that we see the fruition, the fulfillment. Zacharias goes home and he he explains his heart to his wife. And then she conceives. God answers their prayer. Now, before we we wrap everything. Jump to verse 57. Let's kind of finish their story here. We read, now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. And so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. And they would call him by the name of his father, Zacharias. That was customary. But his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father, Zacharias, as to what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God. Then fear came on all those who dwelt around them and all these sayings were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. Again, God had been silent for 400 years and then you have this happen. And a religious community that's tight knit, word is spreading, there's a conversation happening. That's why when John comes onto the scene later on, he's not an unknown commodity. John ends up being raised by elderly parents who know his God-given calling. They instill a faith in him, something that unlike Samson who ran and rejected it, John embraces it. He becomes the voice crying out into the wilderness. He prepares the way of the Lord. All those who heard these things kept them in their hearts saying, what kind of child will be this? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, man has been thinking for about nine months, right? He's got a lot to say and he doesn't waste any time. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us and the house of his servants, David. As he spoke by the mouth, of his holy prophets who had been since the world began 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And then he looks at his little baby boy and he says, you child will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Zacharias knew it to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace so the child grew and became strong in spirit. 400 years of silence. In the course of that, the people get real religious doesn't change their plight. They get hacky sacked from empire to empire. Babylon to Persia, Persia to the Greeks, Greeks to the Romans. They've not been free. They've been in captivity. And then from the darkness, an angel appears to this priest. And says it's time. I want to I, I want to exhort you right from the bat. I don't know how long you've felt in, like you're you've been in darkness. Maybe it's been years where you have felt, God, where are you? God, why are you not speaking? God, I don't see you. I don't hear you. God, I feel disoriented. Where are you? Have you forgotten me? Have you abandoned me? Are you done with me? That darkness could be years, man. It could be this week where you have felt in darkness this week and like, I need a breakthrough, God. Please understand God hears you and he sees you and darkness is not forever but it's just a season. And without you knowing it, light. Light. If you need a breakthrough this morning, I pray for you. At the end of our service, when you open your eyes, may you see the revelation of Jesus. The greater application as to the larger narrative is that what is really the remedy? What's the answer to the world's problems? We've got a lot of them. The answer to the world's problems will never be a politician. It'll never be a party. It'll never be a movement. This was darkness Piety, religion, Rome, advancement, darkness. And what was the remedy then? The remedy then to the world's problems is the same remedy that it is today and will always be. And that's Jesus.
That's Jesus. And to prepare the way for Jesus, God is gracious, for he calls John's to go and prepare the way. There is no advent with the prepara- without the preparation. And I, and I say that to say that like you might have people in your life that don't know the Lord, that are in that proverbial darkness, that are lost. Do you know that you can have that call of John? What, your job's not to save them. You're not the savior. You're not Jesus. You're just the one making the path straight for the way of the Lord. You're just preparing the way. For what? For Jesus. Jesus says there were none greater than John. Because John got it. Man, my job is to point people to Jesus. And if I'm ever in the way, may I decrease so he can increase. I need to prepare for Jesus. You know, Christmas, the Christmas season, it's so convoluted. But there is something at least inherent within our society of, of kind of a, a religious bent. You know, you, you people, people tend to go to church twice a year, Christmas and Easter, because there's something within us. There's some call, there's some tug. This year, I want you to think of one person that doesn't know Jesus that needs Jesus to shine in their darkness. And maybe you're being called to be John, to prepare that way. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.